the Guardian. What do you do when you're out late and the trains and buses have stopped running? Or you just need transportation that's quick and easy? Welcome aboard and thanks for riding with Uber. For your safety, we kindly ask you to please fasten your seatbelt. During your ride, please keep your mobile phone switched on at all times so you can follow your trip and find out all about your driver. Well, in London, 3.5 million people use the ride-sharing app Uber. But maybe not for much longer. TfL have uncovered a number of uh, serious breaches, a pattern of failure that leads TfL to believe that Uber aren't a fit and proper operator. Last week, Transport for London, a local government body responsible for the day-to-day operation of public transport and some of the roads in London, announced that it was stripping Uber of its licence to operate in the UK capital, citing a number of offences that they found concerning. The single most compelling reason for blocking Uber this time were the 14,000 trips it identified made by drivers who'd faked their identities, essentially. As you might imagine, given London is its biggest European market, Uber is not best pleased at what is effectively a ban. And it plans to appeal the decision. Of course, Uber isn't the only tech company drawing the attention of city regulators. Airbnb isn't the only culprit in this set of frustrations, but it's very much the largest and quite you know, visible entity that has very much disrupted the rental market. Companies like Airbnb and Uber have been fighting city officials for years now, but it feels like the cities are starting to win. City officials have an inherently small c conservative bent, and when they do want change, they want it to be the change they've planned. And it's unsettling to see that control taken away from you and to see that the fabric of the city might be changed by someone else. I'm Jordan Erica Weber, and this week I look at the ongoing battle between city officials and these big tech companies. This is Chips With Everything. Now, I have a confession to make. I've only ridden in an Uber or stayed in an Airbnb a couple of times each, and only when other people have booked them. I've never actually directly interacted with these services myself. Part of the reason for that is because of the stories I've seen and heard about problems people have had with them in the past. And those problems are what cities like London are trying to prevent. I'm Gwyn Topham, I'm transport correspondent for The Guardian. How long have you been covering the battle between Uber and London? Oh my word, I think when I started it wasn't really a battle. I think London seemed very pleased to have them, you know, it was just a big sexy multinational thing making everything work better and then uh, it's it's only really the last two or three years it's turned into a battle, I think. And London isn't the first city in which Uber's had trouble, is it? It isn't, no. There were other places worldwide. Um, Often it's been local taxi drivers, which it was often we've seen again in London, you know, taking umbrage, often seeing their livelihood massively undercut. And the things they've had to pay a lot for, you know, the, the privileges, I guess, to operate suddenly been given away on the cheap. And sometimes it's been the city authorities and, yeah, there's been all sorts of scuffles, haven't there? When I saw the news last week, it gave me deja vu, as if I had seen this headline before. This is pretty much what happened two years ago, but I don't think anybody, certainly at Uber, thought it was going to happen again. Because two years ago, Transport for London said, you're not a fit and proper firm. Uber at that point had just sacked their CEO. They said there was a new culture coming in. They brought in all these rules. And two years down the line, they've once again been told they don't have a license. So TfL gave Uber an ultimatum. 
If you want to operate in London, you have to make sure that your customers are safe. In September 2017, what Transport for London was very clear about was that Uber hadn't been reporting all crimes properly, or at least allegations of crimes. It hadn't done sufficient background checks on its drivers. And they were concerned that they just generally weren't playing by the rules. And did Uber fix anything in that time? It made a lot of changes, did change things in its app. It did install some of the things that Transport for London said it wanted. But the regulator's most recent decision suggests that in their eyes, Uber didn't do enough. Uber seems to do a lot of things by its own rules rather than simply abide by what London wants. And so why did TfL make this decision in the end? What were its reasons? The single most compelling reason for blocking Uber this time were the 14,000 trips it identified made by drivers who had faked their identities, essentially. And even though Uber said they've audited everybody now and they've changed the app and they've tightened it up, I think London authorities were very concerned it could have happened anyway and, you know, they didn't feel there were enough guarantees to stop it happening again. But if you use Uber, you might have noticed that you are still able to book a ride. That's because Uber has been given time to appeal the decision, which the company says it plans on doing. That process just of appealing can take at least months. It could take years if it goes right through the courts and the rules are that they can carry on operating until every avenue is exhausted. The Uber chief executive, Dara Khosrowshahi, tweeted about the TfL's decision, quote, We understand we're held to a high bar, as we should be, but this TfL decision is just wrong. Over the last two years, we have fundamentally changed how we operate in London. I would expect Uber to finally win on appeal, but I think what you might see in the short term is that people this time really are thinking something's wrong with Uber, both users and drivers, and there are a lot of people ready to move in in the market. So... Even if Uber stay, they may end up being much more one of a a number of players rather than the dominant position. It's important to remember that if this ban is upheld, then 45,000 drivers, at least according to Uber, stand to lose work. I think drivers right now are worried about their future because even though Uber say will appeal and they could have eight months, I think people are looking to see what else could I do in case. Um, I've taken a Bolt ride this week, a Via van ride this week, and both those people are uber drivers or they've got both and they just pick and choose and i I think if there's a serious competitor emerges some of those people might give the drivers better conditions it's easy to pull people in with introductory offers and people might switch you know if there are serious competitors who can guarantee a car comes in a way that uber does at the moment we saw a lot of anger from uber users as this news came out but do you think more of that anger is from people who want uber to stay or is it from people who didn't know about the quote, pattern of failures on Uber's part that TfL brought to light? I think the anger is for a mixture of reasons. Obviously, there are some people who just got used to taking Ubers. And for some people, it has become a new way of getting around. Definitely, it has made cabs accessible to people who couldn't afford them before. And for some people, they perceive them as a lot safer. So I think there would be anger if they felt this whole mode of transport disappeared. It would would change people's lives a bit. But then there is also anger, I think, out there about safety. You know, when you speak to a lot of younger people, especially women, I think they take uber because it's cheap and it's safe do they perceive it as safe and if you suddenly feel it isn't safe yeah people are going to be angry about that too but for people who aren't looking too carefully the immediate backlash is no no don't take away my uber this kind of tussle isn't only playing out for uber after the break i look into another tech giant's problems in cities around the world and ask what big tech needs to do to convince these cities to let them stay 
Airbnb, understandably, was was frustrated with the ruling. But what we saw was, I think, a vindication of the frustration a lot of city councillors have felt and residents have felt over the last two years. We'll be right back. When Nancy Astor took her seat after the general election in 1919, some male MPs tried to physically block her. Watching the commotion from high up in the press gallery were Miss Marguerite Cody and Miss E. Cohen, the first women journalists ever tasked with such a role. These two reporters weren't the last to make their mark on the lobby, but I was surprised to find that not much else was known about these early pioneers. So, I went on a mission. I'm Kate Proctor, political correspondent for The Guardian. Head over to the Politics Weekly feed for a special episode where I'm joined by several of Westminster's most prominent women to look back over the decades and explore how women have shaped the lobby that I find myself working in today. It's not just about doing those women a favour, letting them into the press gallery. They are a democratic imperative because without them, we only see half the world. Can't wait for you to hear it. Welcome back to Chips With Everything. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. This week, we're looking at why some tech companies are in a seemingly constant battle to operate in major cities around the world. Before the break, we looked at Uber in London, but now we're heading across the Atlantic, where another member of the Silicon Valley elite is facing problems. Um, so I looked at what's been happening in Toronto, um, and it's been, I think, you know, the, the story was, you know, Toronto wins big victory over, um, you know, rental giant Airbnb. But it's really a story of, of kind of years of frustration that have kind of bubbled over into, um, you know, legislation that was passed by the city and, and kind of bylaws that were passed to really address a growing rental crisis um, in Toronto. Leyland Checo is based in Toronto, Canada, where he recently reported on the city's win against Airbnb. Producer Danielle asked him why Toronto wants to rein in short-term rentals. Well, you know, Toronto is Canada's biggest city. It's one of the biggest cities in North America, and it's just seen a population explosion over the last few years. What that's meant is that, you know, real estate prices are are largely unaffordable for for the average resident. And so people turn to long-term rentals as a way of finding secure housing. The problem is, you know, when a company like Airbnb comes in and says to, to residents, hey, you know, you're a homeowner, you can rent out units in this apartment, you can rent out units in your house. It incentivizes people to say, I can make a lot more money if I'm renting out my house, you know, per night, per week, rather than, you know, securing contracts that are, you know, years. And so what that's done is it's removed a lot of affordable housing from a city that's already struggling to have a sufficient amount of housing. You know, the the healthy vacancy rate, they say, for a city is about 3% of all units are vacant and available for rent. But Toronto's close to 1%, which means, you know, it's, it's, it's very much a crisis in the city for people being able to find affordable long-term housing. And when did city officials or residents there start realizing that Airbnb was part of the cause for this kind of shortage? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a story that, that's kind of made headlines recently, but it's, it's really a story of, of kind of, you know, growing frustration over years. And I think we're seeing right now this, this growing, this backlash towards large tech companies disrupting, um, you know, systems that have, have long been in place. Um, but this is what we, what we saw recently with Airbnb Toronto is a reflection of, of bylaws that were passed 
more than two years ago by the city of Toronto to address, um, you know, the, this housing crisis in the city. So, you know, even even two years ago, city councillors recognized that Airbnb was having a negative and detrimental effect on the city's rental market. You know, and I, you know, I think it was a kind of a, a prescient set of bylaws that were passed, but it's very reflective of kind of how we see the role of these big companies, you know, currently. Air, Airbnb isn't the only culprit in this set of frustrations, but it's very much the largest and quite, you know, visible entity um, that has, has has very much disrupted the rental market. And so what exactly happened in the Ontario Tribunal? So what happened was, you know, the city had passed these bylaws two years ago, essentially trying to rein in the power of, of Airbnb in the city. And, you know, in virtue of the fact that these bylaws are, are up for appeal and review, it was a fairly long, lengthy bureaucratic process as it wound its way through the, you know, the various bodies that um, adjudicate these these um, these bylaws, and so recently what we got was a tribunal ruling um, provincially that basically looked at the the rules that Toronto had put in place and said, you know what, these are fair, these are sufficient. Um, in the end, the tribunal in Ontario sided with city officials on the matter, upholding Toronto regulations on short-term rentals that restrict them to a homeowner's principal residence and for a maximum of 180 days a year. And so, you know, Toronto won a pretty big victory against, you know, the San Francisco-based company. You know, the mayor praised the ability for the adjudicator to kind of uphold the bylaws. You know, advocacy groups were quite happy. But what we saw was, I think, a vindication of the frustration a lot of city councillors have felt and residents have felt over the last two years. Airbnb, predictably, wasn't too happy with this decision. No, I mean, you know, they, they cast the bylaw as something that, you know, unfairly punishes law-abiding homeowners and, and, you know, condo owners. And it's true that not every person who's using Airbnb is is doing, you know, what the city is trying to attack, this, this idea of kind of ghost hotels. But I think Airbnb increasingly has to reckon with the fact that they're operating in cities that are increasingly becoming unlivable for residents. You know, in, there's certain parts of Toronto where, you know, more than half the paycheck of the average resident is going to rent. And the adjudicator at the at the tribunal said, you know, this ruling or this, you know, up, upholding of bylaws will potentially unleash 5,000 rental units back into the market. You know, that's that's material. That's that's a big difference for residents who are looking for secure housing. So, you know, Airbnb has said, you know, they'll cooperate with the bylaws. And I think, you know, there is frustration. But at the same time, I think there's also an increasing realization that they operate in a, in a market that is increasingly under you know pressure as as it grows and as as people search for affordable and and long term housing. So I think you know they're they're trying to strike that balance, but that balance isn't the easiest thing to strike. So given the fight between cities and big tech appears to be favoring the cities, what can companies like Airbnb and Uber do to try and make peace? London sets quite a good precedent. If London can chuck out Uber and homegrown cab companies can continue to work and London's transport doesn't slow to a crawl and London's mayor wins re-election after making that decision, that suggests to other municipalities that actually Uber, when it comes in and throws its weight around, can be fought and can be beaten. And that, I think, is what Uber's owners in Silicon Valley will be afraid of. Alex Hearn, the UK's tech editor, has been following what's happening with both Uber and Airbnb. And there are important structural differences between Airbnb and Uber. The big one being that for all that Uber argues that 
Its drivers are self-employed, small businesses, and that it merely matches passenger customers with driver customers. Everyone knows that Uber drivers work for Uber. Sorry, like that, that is still a legally contentious fact, but as a matter of normal human language, that's how we think of it. That's how everyone behaves, drivers and riders alike. With Airbnb, that's quite clearly not the case. No one thinks of an Airbnb host as being an Airbnb employee or working for Airbnb. No one thinks of the house you stay in when you stay with Airbnb as being Airbnb's house. And that actually does limit the abilities of cities to act on these things. One of the problems that Uber's faced is the, the duck test. If it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck. If it looks like a cab company and its drivers drive cabs, then it's probably a cab company. Airbnb just doesn't look like a hotel company. And that does limit the ability of municipalities to go, you need a hotel license. It limits the ability of municipalities to turn to Airbnb and go, your hosts are breaking laws on using their houses for short-term letting over more than 90 days of the year, and we're going to punish you. Because Airbnb, much more than Uber, is a platform. It does feel wronger to hold Airbnb liable for the acts of its hosts than it does to hold Uber liable for the acts of its drivers. Are we beginning to see a pattern of cities trying to take on big tech? Yeah, absolutely. Partially that's because we've had the tech lash, the, the backlash against big tech, and it's no longer seen as a, a de facto vote loser if you do take on big tech. Certainly four or five years ago when New York City first started going heavy against Uber, that was really unpopular. It was the first time Uber really mobilized its own user base to campaign against a measure that was intended to clamp down on it, and it really worked. New York City's authorities ran scared at the mail-in campaign that came from Uber's users. These days, I don't think that works quite as well. I don't think it's seen as automatically controversial to take on a large tech company. Do you think there are ways that cities would look more kindly on these companies, like maybe if they were paying more taxes? You know, money money matters. Taxes matter. There are examples of cities turning to big tech favorably, the, the most notorious of which is, is Toronto's Sidewalks Labs, which is a alphabet subsidiary that uh, is rebuilding a small part of the country, as I think we've talked on this podcast, well, you've talked about <laughs> on this podcast before. That shows that tech can come in and make deals with cities. I think the problem is, and it goes back to the nature of Airbnb and Uber, they have been called in the past regulatory arbitrage. One way of looking at what Uber is as a company is Uber allows an individual driver to do something that would be illegal if that driver did it on their own, which is drive to the curb, pick up a passenger and drop them off somewhere without a taxi license. What Uber does is Uber basically, and you know this is a description of what the value the company provides is, Uber basically goes, all of you drivers do this under our aegis, we will fight the government for you, the government cannot jail us and we have more lawyers, you won't go to jail, we'll take a portion of your salary and that's great. That's an adversarial approach. There's no two ways about it. There was already a way of running minicabs in London before Uber. There were already ways of running cabs in most cities where Uber now operates. Uber didn't actually have much to offer cities. Its play was exclusively the rules and regulations that you're happy with. We can make money by breaking them in a very carefully calibrated way that is hard for you to fight back against. A common argument against TfL's most recent decision is that city officials are against innovation. City officials 
have an inherently small c conservative bent and when they do want change they want it to be the change they've planned if you are running london a huge complex machine then you probably have and indeed tfl does have a 20-year transformation plan which is fiendishly complex quite closely mapped out and it's unsettling to see that control taken away from you and to see that the fabric of the city might be changed by someone else you have some defenses as a city official against that for instance you are the elected one you have a much bigger claim to being able to control the future of the city than a company that's coming with an app but it does push a a small c conservative approach to things when you look at the findings that 14,000 Uber trips involving 43 drivers had someone other than the booked driver picking up passengers and the findings with Airbnb that they created these ghost hotels shouldn't users be more worried about what these companies can do or do people just continue to choose convenience over trust I think people do continue to choose convenience over trust that's that's absolutely the lesson we've learned from the last you know 5 years or so the, the rise of these companies I think more than convenience actually it's often purely price i don't even think actually uber is significantly more convenient than many of its competitors but it's much much cheaper in part because one of the many tricks that uber has uh, played in the structure of its companies you don't have to pay vat on uber rides because technically you're paying it to the driver and the driver earns under eighty-five thousand pounds which is the threshold for filing a vat return in the uk which means that it's vat free and that's completely legal and only legal for as long as Uber can continue to maintain the legal fiction that your journey is with the driver rather than Uber. Trust, reputation does matter. Uber was genuinely hurt by the delete Uber movement a few years back, less because people actually deleted their accounts, although they did in moderately large numbers, but more because it created an opening for rivals like Lyft in the US and Captain in the UK to come in and have a pitch that is essentially... We're Uber, we offer exactly the same thing as Uber, but hey, we're the ethical ones. That's a solid way of building up a a head of steam. You know, you offer yourselves as the ethical alternative, and that gives you a bedrock of users, which you can then build in the standard, wonderful capitalist way. Alex does think that the fight between these companies and regulators will work itself out in time. In the long term, these companies will be regularised. There will be legal licensing regimes for running a ride-sharing company in London. There will be ways to apply to your council for the right to have an Airbnb flat, and the council will declare whether or not you can rent it for 90 days of the year, 180 days, whether or not you can get a license to put it on Airbnb for 365 days of the year. Some of those things sort of exist right now, but we haven't fully sat down and gone, okay, well, where does the liability lie if it's broken? Who's responsible for enforcing it? We're already starting to see this sort of innovation. In New York, for instance, the city really did manage to put some of the burden of enforcement onto Airbnb. Airbnb will now make sure, if you are a host, that you actually have the paperwork because New York City turned to Airbnb and said, you have to do this. I think in, in the long term, that's going to continue. You know, these companies are disruptive, but after a while, they become the norm. And when they're the norm, that's the sort of thing that governments are quite good at dealing with. And ultimately, still, the people who hold the rule book hold the power. Uber can disrupt for so long, but then after that, all it has really going for it is it's popular and people use it. And that's not enough to beat a law that says, fine, but we're still going to fine you if someone breaks the law using your app. 
As more news comes out about why city officials are concerned about the likes of Uber and Airbnb, I feel lucky not to have to rely on these companies. But for the sake of those who do, I hope they change their behaviours soon. Massive thanks to Gwyn Topham, Leyland Checo and Alex Hearn for joining us this week. You can follow all of the latest news on Uber and Airbnb at theguardian.com. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. Thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. In den Western Hotels und Resorts ermöglichen Ihnen unsere Wellness-Programme, Ihre tägliche Routine aufrechtzuerhalten, egal wohin Sie reisen. Von unserem preisgekrönten Heavenly Bed für einen erholsamen Schlaf über das Sportoutfit Leihprogramm, damit Sie mit kleinem Gepäck reisen können und trotzdem fit bleiben. Zu den ausgewählten Gerichten unseres neuen Eat Well Menüs. Wir sind hier, damit Sie sich unterwegs wohlfühlen. Entdecken Sie einen Ort, an dem Sie nicht nur übernachten können, sondern auch über sich hinauswachsen. Erfahren Sie mehr unter westin.de, Mitglied von Marriott Bonvoy.